All right. Well, good morning again, and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. I am, I am uh, as always, praising our Lord in my heart that we can come together and sing together, uh, as imperfect as it may be, uh, sing together and worship to our Lord. This reminds me, uh, just to jump in my mind, it reminds me of the upcoming winter retreat. I thought I wanted to, I thought I would take a few moments to give a shameless plug, if you will. As you're aware, as we've talked about in the announcements for the last couple few weeks, uh, we have our second annual winter retreat coming up at Lake Swan Camp, January 7th through the 9th. That's a little less than one month away, and as I said this morning, the 24th will be uh, the deadline for, the, for signing up because we've got to get the information over to, to Lake Swan Camp. Now, I pray that you will choose to attend and take advantage of this uh, beautiful setting at the lake. I encourage you to come whether you're able to participate in every session. I mean, if you can only come for one or two, that's fine. We just want you to be there. Uh, we'd love to have you come and be there for the whole time. Uh, I know that, that our time together will be edifying, and you know it, it actually coincides with our fifth anniversary. Uh, we've asked Justin McKittrick, the pastor of Grace Jacks, to speak. Now, you probably don't pers personally, know, many of you don't personally know him, but God has used Justin to encourage our leadership during this first five years. And so I trust that his time of teaching uh, will encourage you as well. Now, let me give you a few quick reasons why you should, should consider attending this winter retreat. First is we all need rest and relaxation, do we not? So we're designing the schedule to allow you time to spend with your family or to just take a nap. Uh, we need to take naps sometimes. We need to take advantage of those times of refreshment. So we hope that you'll come and do so. Second, second, we all need to spend time with families, family and others we love. At the camp, if, we, if you choose to go, you may, uh, be able, you'll be able to talk as a family, to, to go for a walk, or even... Uh, last year, my son and I and my daughter went fishing, and it was a, a great time. Whatever you decide to do while you're there, there are opportunities to enjoy your family, your spouse and your children, if you have been blessed in that way. But if you're single, you can take advantage of this unique opportunity to spend time with the Lord and intentionally get, intentionally get to know others in the body of Christ. Third, we all need fellowship. We are arranging the schedule to allow for ample opportunity to gather around food, games, and even a warm fireplace or campfire. Let's pray for cold weather, by the way. I, I love cold weather. Last year was perfect. It, didn't, it wasn't the greatest in terms, of the, in terms of the activities, but I can tell you in terms of being, being around the fireplace and being around the campfire, it was perfect. So hopefully we'll uh, be able to do some of that. I have it on good authority that we'll have co hot cocoa and marshmallows and maybe even s'mores. I'm kind of presuming upon people right now. <laughs> and there will certainly be lots of good coffee. I will make sure of that. You just need to watch your coffee and sugar or your caffeine and sugar intake. In all, in all seriousness, I hope that you'll consider to go. Uh, you, I hope you'll consider going because it you will enjoy your time in this setting with the brethren. Let me give you a fourth reason. We all need time to pray and receive God's Word, the truth of God's Word. And so it, sometimes in a different setting, in a different situation, uh, it's, it's, uh, it gives us a, a different perspective. And so you'll have time there at the camp to spend time with your, the Lord in prayer and meditation. 
This could happen with walks through the woods or by the lake. Uh, just, just, uh, just time alone with the Lord. You also have opportunity to learn from Justin and share with him and others how the Lord is using the truth of the Word to impact you. Let me give you a fifth, fifth reason why you should go. If you don't, if you don't, I'm taking the time to tell you you need to go. So I'm, I'm doing this because I want you to go. Fifth, we need to apply the truth of God's Word in our lives. Going to this winter retreat will give you opportunities to discuss all that you've learned with your family and with others who attend. Sharing the things that you learned will drive the Word deep into your heart. So I pray that you will consider going to the camp, this uh, winter retreat on January 7th through the 9th. Now, as we pick back up this morning on the series I've titled Preparing for Battle, uh, today we will see the importance of praying personally for individual saints. Fellowship is a major part of prayer because it gives us the opportunity or gives the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to, to knit our hearts together in love. Attending the winter retreat will deepen your prayer life. The better we know people, the better we know others in the body of Christ, the more personal and caring we can be in our prayers for them. This leads us to pray for them in, a deep, in deeper and more profound ways. Now, I, I, I trust that all of you want to pray with depth and discernment. I, I trust that. With Paul's final words at Ephesus, we will get the sense of the personal nature of Paul's relationship that, that he had with the church at Ephesus. We'll also learn how to pray for one another in ways that show that we love and care for one another. So let's dive into Ephesians 6, 18-20. Let me pray as uh, we settle our hearts this morning to hear the preaching of the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we come to you again. Father, you know my... Right now, my uh, mind is going in a hundred different directions. But I pray right now that you would superintend this process of preaching your word. I pray that the speaker, the one speaking the words and the hearer, the ones hearing your word, would be prepared for this. May you be glorified this morning as we preach in this passage, as we teach your word, as we hear your word. Father, may we apply your word in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read Ephesians 6. Starting in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Historian David, David C. Ward describes Confederate, generals, Confederate General Robert E. Lee's surrender to Ulysses S. Grant as follows. 
It was a momentous yet modest and low-key occasion as the two generals met with just a few aides in the small parlor of Wilmer McLean's house in Appomattox, Virginia. A small irony is that McLean was present at both the beginning and the end of the war. He had moved from his original home on the Bull Run battlefield to get as far away from the theater of the, of the war as possible. The meeting at the McLean house was the climax of a years of, year of campaigning. Grant had moved against Lee in May of 1864, initiating the Overland Campaign with its near-constant warfare. By constantly engaging the Army of Northern Virginia, Grant had pressured Lee to move south and east in keeping the Union Army away from Richmond. By June, <coughs> the armies had reached stasis as they entrenched around Petersburg. Nine months of siege warfare followed. The pressure finally broke, by eight, March 1865, Lee's army was wearing out. Desert, desertion rates were high, and the resupply of everything from ammunition to food became impossible. Lee tried to buy time with an assault late that month, but it failed. The Union counterassault finally forced Lee away from Peters, Petersburg and Richmond, both of which fell, fell on April 3rd. Grant continued to harry Lee, or to, to pursue Lee, that is, as the Confederate Army attempted to escape south to find supplies. Lee attempted to join General Joe Johnston, who was retreating through the Carolinas, pursued by William Tecumseh Sherman's Union Army. The end came suddenly. A brief exchange of correspondence in which Grant urged upon Lee the hopelessness, the hopelessness of his position. The, the meeting at the McLean House was the result. As might be expected, the occasion was awkward, and the two general, generals exchanged small talk until Lee reminded Grant why they were even there. Grant, who had the ability for swift and clear written expression, quick, quickly drafted the terms of surrender which focused only on military matters. Lee asked the Southerners to be allowed to keep their horses, which they owned, and Grant agreed. Grant also agreed to distribute rations to the hungry Confederate army. Formalities concluded, the group went back outside, and Lee rode away on his famous battle horse, Traveler. Union troops began to cheer the news as the, uh, the news of the war's end. A celebratory can cannonade began, but Grant ordered it stopped in respect for the defeated foe, as we did not exult over their downfall. The terms that Grant imposed and Lee accepted were one of the last notes of clarity as the war ended and Reconstruction began. Now, as I consider this historic occasion, I'm overwhelmed by two things. I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the simplicity of the exchange. These two generals came together like old friends without the fanfare you might expect from an occasion like this. In fact, Later depictions of this scene inflate the low-key meeting by adding officers and enlarging the room that they uh, did this, uh, that they'd signed the, the, the surrender in. This was to be expected since Grant and Lee were negotiating the end of the bloodiest war in American history. I'm also overwhelmed by the brokenness of this man, General Robert E. Lee. He was a beaten man. He was a fully defeated foe. Clearly his men and him fought to the bitter end. He came to the house of surrender because Grant had thoroughly whipped him. Now, we should recognize a stunning truth in this story. 
in war, it's always the defeated foe who sues for peace, is it not? In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he says, Generally in war, it is the less who sends to the greater to entreat for, for peace. Tis seldom that the victorious, while they bear their banners high, suddenly pause amid the battle and send, send an embassy to say to the vanquished, Let there be peace between us. The conquerors usually wait till the beaten ones know they are beaten and sue for the terms. And they count it gracious on their part to be willing in the, in the full expectation of yet further victories, to pause a while to discuss the terms of peace. When the commander-in-chief has half won the campaign and sees the absolute certainty that he could destroy his enemy, he does not hasten to put back his sword into the scabbard. Get the point? The victor, the victor doesn't stop until the one who's losing says, I'm done. But this is exactly what God does. You see, He has won the war. The head of the enemy has been crushed. Yet God in His mercy has put the sword back in its scabbard. He acts as if He is the weaker of the two combatants. He stops in the midst of the battle and He sends out His ambassadors for peace. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21, Paul declares that as believers, you and I, we are ambassadors for Christ. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. According to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.20, God is making an appeal to unbelievers through us for reconciliation. Now here's the shocking part. Here's the shocking part. As ambassadors of Christ... We suffer for Him at the hands of the very people that God has sent us to proclaim His message of peace. Christ's ambassadors aren't sent on a normal victory parade. That will come later. Christ's ambassadors suffer great hardship for their King. Christ's ambassadors suffer terrible persecution for Him. Of all people, Paul had a keen understanding of the suffering that the ambassador of the king undergoes. He was in chains even as he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. We can't underestimate the importance of the connection between Paul's imprisonment, Paul's, the fact that Paul was in chains, and his letter to Ephesus. Turn to Acts 20. I want to take a few moments to walk through this critical connection because it sheds light on our passage this morning. In Acts chapter 20, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem when he stopped and called on the Ephesians, Ephesian elders to, called his, uh, the Ephesian elders to him in Miletus. His words to them in Acts 20, 32 showed that he was concerned for their ministry and their well-being. In 20:32, if you look down, so that verse, it says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, he didn't stay long here in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 because he wanted to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. Now, in 21.4, Acts 21.4, when he arrived at Tyre, 
the disciples kept warning him not to set foot in Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem. That's what he was set to do. That's what he was set to, to, he was set to go. And in 21, 10, and 11, the, pro, the, the prophet Agabus also warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Look down at, at verses 10 and 11. As they were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, Paul's mind, though, even though this had been prophesied, even though the disciples were warning him not to go, Paul's mind couldn't be changed. Look at his answer in verses 13 and 14. This is 21, Acts 21, 13 and 14. Then Paul answered and said, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. Now look down in verses 18 and 19. After his arrival in Jerusalem, he met with James and the elders and told them all that God was doing among the Gentiles. Now, in verses 21 and 22, what we find is that the Judaizers were spreading lies about Paul, saying that he was teaching the Jews to forsake Moses. Look at verses 21 and 22. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children and not to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now, the question is, as, as you see in, in verse 22, what is to be done? So they instructed him to be purified since he, they, since he had been in Gentile lands. Nonetheless, even though the, he, Paul did all these things, they, nonetheless, Paul was seized in the temple. In verses 27 and 28, this is Acts 21, 27 and 28, some Jews from Asia stirred up the crowd against him, saying, Men of Israel, come to our aid, this is the man who preaches to all, to, to all men everywhere against our people and the, law, and, and the law in this place, in the temple. And besides, even, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, which was untrue. In Acts 21-29, Luke gives the exact charge he, that they made against Paul. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, now, that's, see the connection, the church at Ephesus, this, this is Trophimus the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. But that's untrue. Paul had not done that. So they were stirring up lies. But what I want you to see here is that Paul then was imprisoned. He was imprisoned for taking the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles. He was a hated man because God had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Therefore, the Judaizers had him arrested. Now, we know from Acts 23.11 that the Lord, wanted, the Lord wanted Paul to go to Rome as well. And look at verse, or chapter 23, if you're still in Acts, flip over to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. It says, But on the night immediately following... 
the Lord stood at his side, this is Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at, my, at Rome also. Now, here's the connection back then to Ephesus. So Paul started in Ephesus in Acts, or in Acts 20. He traveled to Jerusalem. He's now been arrested in the temple. And now he's, he's, he's going to actually, in the future, appeal to, to, to Rome, to, to Caesar. And, now he's, and then he's going to be taken to, to Rome. And that's going to give me, he's, we're going to see that throughout Acts, or all the way to Acts 28. Now, most people believe, most believe, that the letter of Ephesians was written while he was imprisoned in Rome. So, at that point, when he wrote the letter, he had been imprisoned for about four to five years. Now, if you'll turn back to Ephesians 3, I want to tie these events, the, the events of his imprisonment, arrest and imprisonment, and the fact that he's now in Rome, I want to tie those back to the letter. So, in, a free, in Ephesians 3, 1, Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice two things here. First, notice that he is a prisoner. He says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, I believe that points back to the Lord's words in Acts 23, 11. It's the Lord who put him in that position. It's the Lord who wanted him to witness at Jerusalem. It's the Lord who wanted him then to witness in Rome. It was the Lord who chose for Paul to suffer these things for his purposes. But I also want you to notice his words, for the sake of you Gentiles. This phrase is a, a direct reference to the reason for his arrest. Paul's mission from the Lord was to the Gentiles. Because of this, the Jews claimed that he was distorting God's revelation. Therefore, they worked, as we saw in Acts chapter 21, they worked to have him imprisoned by the Romans. Clearly, Clearly, his ministry to the Gentiles was the cause of his imprisonment. Now, Paul didn't tell them this for their pity. He didn't want, he didn't want the church at Ephesus to pity him. Look down at chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. You see, he didn't want them, he didn't want their pity. No, he didn't want that. He wanted them to recognize that Christ, Christ Jesus himself, had placed them in chains for their sakes. Now, he was imprisoned to witness for the cause of Christ in Jerusalem and in Rome. We saw that in Acts 23. Now, it is critical for us to recognize that Paul wrote this letter in Rome as he faced the prospect of defending himself before the Roman emperor. Now, at this point, I want us then to transition to Ephesians 6.10. In that verse, Paul encouraged the church at Ephesus to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, we should, should view this through the, the lens of Paul's actual situation as well as the situation on the ground at, at Ephesus. You see, Paul was in prison for doing what he is calling the church at Ephesus to continue. Does that make sense? Paul... Paul is imprisoned for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul is calling for the church 
to continue that ministry, taking the gospel into Gentile territories, being a, a part of that gospel, of the gospel going, continuing to go to those who had never heard it. Now, the saints at Ephesus had undoubtedly been attacked, satanically attacked, from the beginning, and Paul knew that that would continue. He knew that they would continue to endure spiritual opposition. Therefore, in verse 11, he tells them, put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against what? Against the schemes of the devil. You see, Satan doesn't want the gospel to go forward. He doesn't want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be heard by those who have never heard it before. He wanted, then Paul then knew that they were vulnerable to attack. He wanted them to know that these attacks were not from physical man, but from spiritual forces of darkness. Now, because of this, because they were spiritual forces, they couldn't withstand those demonic assaults on their own. So Paul exhorted them to put on the full armor of God to stand firm or resist those attacks. Now, in Ephesians 6, 14-17, he describes the armor. Now, we're not going to take the time. We've already been through that. We're not going to take the time today, but just, just be reminded that Paul tells them each piece of armor that they are to put on. Now, in Ephesians 6, 18, after encouraging the Ephesian saints to put on the armor of God to stand firm, Paul further encourages the church at Ephesus to pray. Now, in doing so, he gave them seven indispensable characteristics of spirit-filled prayers of the believers. Now, we've studied in the past two weeks, we've studied those six characteristics. And we won't spend time reviewing them, but but I will remind you that your prayers must be conscientious, constant, controlled by the Spirit, cognizant, continuing, and comprehensive. Now, that's six. That's six characteristics. So I covered six. Now you may have noticed that six doesn't equal seven. There are actually seven. Now seventh, the, seventh, the seventh one, the seventh characteristic, forms a hinge. Seventh, your prayers must be caring. Caring. It says pray on my behalf. Paul is asking them specifically to pray on his behalf. Look at your text in verse 19. Now, in 6.18, Paul had explained that to the church how to pray for the saints. That's the characteristics of prayer. Now in 6.19, he's making a request for personal prayer. Now, the reason I walk through the background of Paul's imprisonment I, I want you to understand that his situation is, is not a walk in the park. It, it, it is not. So he's asking for the church to pray for him. Now, we should recognize that he wants the church then to apply all those characteristics of prayer to his situation. He wanted him, he wanted him to pray for all the saints in this way, but now he wants them specifically to pray for him. Now, In 6.18, he called for them to be alert for all the saints. He wanted them to be watchful for the sake of one another. Now, at this point, he wants them to be aware of his situation and vigilant in prayer for him. In other words, their prayers are to be very personal and and caring, 
We show our love for one another when we understand what's going on with one another and we pray specifically for one another. As Christians, we ought to know one another's circumstances and we ought to pray specifically for the saints. Now, I said this form to hinge. This characteristic of prayer leads us to the rest of the text in verses 19 to 20. In these two verses, Paul expands upon his personal prayer request. Now, I've titled this Prayers for the Soldiers. So, after giving the Ephesian church seven characteristics of prayer, Paul requests a prayer that gives us two appropriate petitions for the brethren. We should pray that God would give us accurate communication and appropriate courage. Now, let's look at the first one. The first first one is give us accurate communication. After requesting the church to pray for him, Paul then launches into the content of his prayer request. Look at your your text in verse 19. He says, That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. That's in the NAS. The word translated utterance in the NAS is is the Greek word. You probably heard it, logos or logos. This word can be translated word. But in this case, Paul uses it to convey the idea of speech. Uh, The ESV translates this verse, some of you have the ESV, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. The New English translation translates it, that I may be given the message when I begin to speak. Now, through this, you should be able to recognize Paul's point. Quite literally, he wants the Holy Spirit to give him the message or the words to speak in the situation that he finds himself in. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone who finishes your sentences for you? It's funny, when I'm in the pulpit, except today for some reason, I can't seem to spit out my words quickly enough. But in conversation, I have the habit of speaking slowly as I try to form my thoughts. I guess that's frustrating to some people because they want to finish my sentences. Sometimes it's pretty hilarious how far off they are, but other times it's un- <laughs> at other times it's uncanny how closely they come to my thoughts. I'm sure that some of you have experienced that. Well, in this case, Paul not only wants the Holy Spirit to finish his sentences, he wants him to start his sentences as well. I'm reminded of, of Jesus' words in John 14, 26. He says, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said to you. Now, in this context, Jesus didn't speak those words directly to Paul, but we can surmise that that this promise applied to Paul as well. Now, we see something similar in Luke 21, 10-15. Now, Jesus was actually, in, in Luke 21, He was describing what His disciples would see in the future. You can turn there if you want to see it. In in 21.10, it says, He continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Now, this is what I want you to hear right here. So, If you've stopped listening, start listening right now. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So they're going to lay their hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you to synagogues and and prisons. 
and they're going to bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake. Does that sound familiar? Well, what does he say? What does he say? It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony, so make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. What? If I tried not to prepare myself, I'd be a mess. But he's saying, don't prepare yourselves ahead of time. Then he says this, For I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refuse. Now, let's apply this to Paul's situation. We've already established that he's in Rome having appealed to the Roman emperor Nero. Now, Scripture doesn't doesn't record his time before this Roman emperor, but we know that Nero had quite the reputation, did he not? In AD 64, he he burned, or he had, uh, Rome was burned under him. Now, we don't know exactly what happened there. Some believe the fire was an accident. Others believe that uh, Nero actually had it burned to make make way for his his planned expansions that he wanted to do. Tacitus writes that to remove suspicion from himself, Nero accused Christians of starting the fire. According to his account, many Christians were arrested. They were brutally executed by being thrown to the beast, being crucified, by being burned alive. There's even accounts of them being burned alive as, as candles to light up his parties. Tacitus asserted that Nero was given to such ferocious punishments, not out of a sense of justice, but out of a sense of personal cruelty. I mean, that's the kind of man that we're talking about. Now, whatever the truth about Nero, he was by most accounts a cruel and tyrannical man. Many believe that Peter and Paul were both actually martyred under his rule. Now, look back at 619. Now, with that in your mind, the reason why he's in, that, that Paul is in in this situation, we know that within, within his mind, who he's going to face, he says, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Here, Paul reveals his intent as he speaks to the Roman officials. The word, the word translated make known means to reveal information that is previously unknown. In this case, the Romans were ignorant of the true ch- nature of the church. Christ wanted to use Paul to explain the mystery of the church to those who didn't understand. In the case of the Jews, they didn't understand why the Gentiles were being included. We already saw that. So that put a target squarely on Paul's back. In the case of the Romans, they didn't recognize the church as distinct from the Jews. Therefore, Paul was caught in the middle. In the, the words of Howard Honer, he says, The Roman government looked on the Christians as a sect of the Jews, and the Jews considered them a heretical group. In his trial before Caesar, Paul needed to make clear that Christians were neither a Jewish sect nor a heretical group, but an entirely new entity, the church, the body of Christ, composed of Jewish and Gentile believers. Again, I'm reminded of 21.15, of Luke 21.15. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So the persecution and the imprisonment led to an opportunity for Paul to testify of the church before Rome. And before the Jews as well. But he needed the Spirit's guidance to give him the words to speak. 
It is in this opportunity that Paul wanted to boldly and courageously speak. Therefore, he asked the church at Ephesus to pray for him in this way. We have to realize he didn't ask for comfort. He recognized, he didn't ask for release. He recognized that Jesus was the one who had him in chains for the purpose of boldly making known the mystery of the gospel. In the words of John MacArthur, Paul didn't plead, plead and pray Plead, pray on my behalf in order that his ankles, be, his raw and sore from his shackles might be healed, or that he might be released from prison and suffering. His deep concern was that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. When Satan tempted him to keep quiet about Christ, he wanted God's help to be bold and, and faithful to proclaim the gospel. He wanted help in his own battle against Satan, and he pleaded with his brothers and sisters at Ephesus to pray toward that end. Now, my question to you is how would you respond in similar circumstances? Just this past Friday, Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China, posted the following update. It says, Today marks the third anniversary of the raid on Early Rain Covenant Church and the arrest the arrest of Pastor Wang Yi. He is currently serving a nine-year prison sentence. Please pray for him and for his wife and son who are carefully controlled or being carefully controlled and monitored by the authorities and forbidden from interacting with church members. Think about that for a second. And pray also for the Early Rain Covenant Church, which continues to suffer abuse and harassment at the hands of the Chinese authorities. It was posted on Facebook on Friday. Beloved, these present-day saints are suffering for the sake of the gospel, and they're telling us exactly how to pray. Again, I would ask you, as we sit here in, this, in our comfortable American setting, I, ask, I would ask you, how would you respond in similar circumstances? Just listen to Pastor Yi's words in a letter he wrote shortly before his arrest. He says, if I am imprisoned for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey, will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and the law enforcement. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom, to tell those who have been deprived, who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of, of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, end quote. Now, now, here's how we should be praying for Pastor Yi right now. I mean, he's in jail and he's been there for quite a while. We need to be praying that utterance would be given to him in the opening of his mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel in this modern context. This leads us to our second request. Paul requests or asks that we would pray for God to give us appropriate courage. Therefore, we should pray for God to give us appropriate courage, applying it to us. Look back at your text in verse 20. For which I am an ambassador in chains. 
Now, we've already set this up, so this goes quickly. Paul is an ambassador for the sake of the gospel. Now, he says says he's in chains. I want us to notice something here. He doesn't specifically say, I'm in prison specifically for the gospel, but for the mystery of the gospel. Now, I think that fits, if if you followed, I think that fits what we've seen in reviewing the circumstances of Paul's arrest and, and imprisonment. In referring to the mystery of the gospel, I think he's pointing to the union in Christ, in the church, the body of Christ, the union of believing Jews and Gentiles into one body. Said another way, he's re- referencing the inclusion of the Gentiles into the plan of salvation through faith in Christ without having to become a Jew. Now, let's be clear. Let's be very clear. It is the gospel that is the offense. The the cross is and was and is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's foolishness to the Greek. So Paul clearly recognizes that he is an ambassador for Christ. We saw this clearly in Jesus' plan to send Paul to Jerusalem and Rome. Jesus sent him to both places to witness for his cause. He is an ambassador sent by Jesus then to bring peace through the preaching of the gospel. But he is an ambassador in chains. Now, we have to recognize that this is upside down. You see, Jesus is the victor who sends Paul as his ambassador who is now chained. As we saw in the intro, this is not the way this normally works. It's normally the loser who sues for peace. But in this case, it's the victor. This can also be seen in the idea of ambassador. Harold Honer explains this well. He says, Paul, as an ambassador in chains, is an incongruity, for normally the position of ambassador commands respect, and such is immune to the incarceration by those to to whom he was sent. Instead, commissioned by the, uh, by the mightiest of all sovereigns, Paul has been imprisoned. He goes on to say, Since ambassadors had diplomatic unity, they could speak boldly whatever they wished in behalf of the government they represented. However, prisoners have no such freedom. End quote. But here's the amazing part. Paul is an ambassador in chains, yet Jesus expected Paul to preach boldly in the face of this satanic opposition. And Paul recognized then, because that is the expectation, Paul reckoned, and, and by the way, the promise that, that, that he would be given the words, so therefore Paul recognized his need for God's supernatural enablement to say what he needed to say. He fully understood that he needed the full armor of God, energized by the prayer, by prayer, including prayers of the saints. So, so he tells, when he tells the Ephesians to pray, and he tells them to put on the full armor of God, he's speaking from experience. Does that, does that make sense? He knows the power of Satan to confuse. He knows the power of Satan to twist the truth. He has faced the most ruthless men empowered by the demonic realm he recognized that recognizes that it's not flesh and blood that christians face we face the rulers the powers the world 
forces of this darkness. We, we face the spiritual for, for, forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. That's uh, Ephesians 6.12. You see, Paul was conscious of his own need for the armor and his own need for prayer. He, he was conscious that he needed these to courageously face the forces of darkness. Now look back at Ephesians 6.20. He's incredibly specific in his request. He says that in proclaiming it, the gospel, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. See, Paul knew that he needed the very words to say to those in opposition. He needed the Holy Spirit to give him the words in his mouth, or put the words in his mouth. He desired to speak then the word with the appropriate boldness. He knew that he needed the prayers of the saints to achieve what he wanted to do. We think of Paul as this great man, and he was. But he was a great man precisely because he had the full armor of God, and he was a man who was prayed up. He needed the prayers of the saints. No, no doubt he, needed, he knew he needed them because he ex- had experienced this before. Martin Luther says, no, None can believe how powerful prayer is and what it is able to affect, but those who have learned it by experience. End quote. Beloved, we need courageous men today who are willing to preach the gospel with boldness. A few years ago, a young and immature believer... As a young and immature believer, I had the privilege to have dinner with a small party that included Steve Lawson and John MacArthur. I, I don't want to name drop. I hope you don't see it that, or that way. I was not, I should not have been there. I was a, I might as well have been a fly on the wall for what I brought to the conversation. But one of the men asked them about the, about the men at that time, who were at that time bolding, preaching the gospel. And, you know, names like Sproul came up and Sinclair Ferguson and, and others that you would know came up. <clears throat> as we went through that, as that conversation went on, another question came up. One of the men asked, what about future men? What about, what about, God, what about who is God raising up now? Who do you see coming up? Do, do they, who do they see as being the next generation of bold preachers? What's funny is I can't recall any specific names that they brought up, but I do remember them saying that God is always faithful to raise up His men. Always faithful. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. We don't need any more celebrity pastors. we got plenty of those. You know, there's a... Well, let me say this. We don't need preachers who wear expensive sneakers. Even, Even one of those is too many. There's actually an Instagram site that is called preachers and sneakers and these guys are wearing three to five thousand dollar sneakers on as they preach we don't need purveyors of health and uh, the health and wealth gospel preaching in basketball arenas we don't need that it's not helpful it's not helpful we need men like paul courageous men men who will boldly speak as they ought to speak an army of men and women who are sold out for Christ. Now, I'm going to get very simple with you. Ephesians, Ephesians 5 and 6. We need men who love their wives as Christ loves the church. We need wives who lovingly submit to their husbands as 
church, the church submits to Christ. We need fathers who bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We need children who obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. And in doing so, we need men and women who are willing to give themselves to serve Christ in the church. No matter what the Lord has them doing, no matter what situation they find themselves in, we need faithful men and women. And we know they'll be mocked. We know they'll be pushed out of polite society. We realize that they may even be physically persecuted. They may even be jailed like Pastor Yi and many others. Just think of what's happening in China and other places in this world where men and women are doing exactly what I just talked about. How do you think that the world's going to attack the church? How do you think they're going to attack it? Through the family, right? It's what's happening even right now. Redefining, redefining, quote-unquote, redefining marriage. Forgetting that it's God who defined marriage, right? Church, we need to pray. That's, that's the point. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would raise up saints who won't back down. The church can't remain soft being led by preachers and sneakers. And we can't think that the right men are, and women are going to just ooze up out of the woodwork. We, we have to recognize that God raises up these kinds of, of saints through adversity, through discipleship. You see, Paul became useful to Christ through adversity. And when we face adversity, then we must pray. You see, you see the connection? Beloved, it is through adversity and prayer that God readies, readies us for that fight. But lest we understand, misunderstand, prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the means by which the feeblest among us become the mightiest of warriors. Think about that. I don't, you may be bedridden. You, you may have no strength at all, barely enough strength to mouth a word, but you can be the mightiest of warriors in Christ if you per- just pray. I love the words of Oswald Chambers. Prayer does not fit us for the greatest work. Prayer is the greatest work. Beloved, if you want to see this church be a church which boldly proclaims the name which is above every name, then we need to be a church that prays for one another. We should pray that Jesus gives His saints the accurate communication, the truth of God's Word to preach and teach. And that He gives us the, the appropriate courage to preach the message in the face of demonic opposition, and it will come. We need to recognize the power of these prayers as they're heard in the very throne room of God. I'm reminded of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm also reminded of the words of E.M. Bounds. Prayer is the easiest and the hardest of all things. 
the simplest and the sublimest, the weakest and the most powerful. Its results lie outside the range of human possibilities. They're o- they, they are limited only by what? By the omnipotence of God. End quote. Now, before we leave this place, I want to say a few words to those who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I've spoken much about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, and I would be remiss if I didn't direct my words to your heart. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you're burdened, and you're burdened by your sin. Some of you, some of you are troubled with the guilt of knowing that you are, have sinned against the Holy God. Some of you may even believe that you've gone too far to be saved. But let me tell you something. The grace of our Lord is sufficient. Sufficient. He will save you if you come to Him. Some of you may be chasing after this world and all that it has to offer. My heart has been heavy, even today, thinking about people who are chasing after this world. If you're here today, maybe you realize the emptiness of it all. Maybe you, maybe you have that, that you, your heart is aching. Well, if you're in that place, only Christ can bring you true satisfaction. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. Come to Him. Come to Him. And you will never hunger or thirst again. You may ask, how do I do that? In John 3.14, Jesus told Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In the wilderness, the Lord, Numbers 21, the Lord sent serpents among the people because of their sinful actions. I can just, let me just read. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. So they realized their sin because we have spoken against the Lord. And you intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from among us. And Moses interceded for the people. Now just listen to God's response. Now this, this may sound really bizarre, but just listen to the Lord's response. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, when he looks at that pole, at that serpent, he will live. Now here's the, the truth. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you have been infected with the poison of sin. You will die a certain death and suffer God's wrath eternally for your sin. Christ was lifted up on the cross where He Himself took upon Himself, that is, our sin, and suffered the wrath of the Father in our place. He calls upon you to look upon upon that cross and believe. You see, belief, belief is the point. Belief is the point. That's why Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so whoever believes, believes will in Him have eternal life. 
For, so, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. So if you're here today, and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I beg you to believe. Believe. Believe what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. He took upon Himself the wrath of the Father for your sin, if you'd only believe. I just ask if the Holy Spirit has laid anything upon your heart in the preaching of this sermon that you would contact me or one of the leaders or a mature Christian that you know to answer your questions. Don't let today go by. Don't let today go by without calling out to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you this, this morning. Lord, I just pray that these feeble efforts from the preacher would be blessed. Not because of, not for his glory, but for yours. Pray, Lord, you would use this sermon whether it's in the heart of the believer to pray more for the saints, to get to know others more so that they might be able to be more intimate in their prayers, specific. Father, I pray for those who are suffering persecution even now for their belief in Christ. Father, I pray very specifically for the church there in China. Pastor Wang Yi, others in the church who are suffering persecution. I pray that you would give them a voice, a message, the message of the gospel, so that they may preach in the face of spiritual opposition, that they may not back down. I pray even right now, you would be giving Pastor Yi opportunity to preach the gospel to those who are imprisoning him, that have imprisoned him. Father, I pray that you would give them also comfort. Pray for those who are in Kentucky and other states that are struggling with this disaster. Father, may you give your saints in those areas the message of hope so they may preach the gospel of our King the one who will come and restore all things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.